Hello and welcome to Theology Matters. This is Dr. John Clark. And today we're going to continue our study or look at the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've made comment before, let's do a quick review uh, as we lead into the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, there's a lot of different interpretations when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. And largely, I think those center around two different issues as to why there's so many different interpretations. One of those issues is determining the proper context of the Sermon on the Mount, which would include uh, such topics as who's speaking, who is he speaking to, where did this occur in history? And then more specifically, we know it's Jesus addressing his disciples, but when was he addressing them? At what point in his ministry was this teaching given? And what was the emphasis uh, or the expected response of the audience to whom he was teaching? So that's number one. Number two, a lot of different uh, interpretations come out of the Sermon on the Mount because there's a lack of focus on biblical interpretation with a heavy fo- focus on biblical application. And I think because many people who have ignored the the purity of the interpretation, in other words, what did the original uh, speaker intend for the original audience to understand? That is the interpretation. There's only one of those. There's a a message that God wanted to communicate uh, to this original audience through uh, Jesus Christ. What was that? That's the biblical interpretation. That's what we're looking for before we race off to make application. And so in terms of the context, I mentioned it before, but Jesus's audience were Jews who were living under the Mosaic law. And then primarily the message was directed to his disciples, but we also know that crowds heard this message as well. Now, what, one of the things we learn is that Jesus, at this point of his ministry, is still offering, giving a legitimate offer of the long-awaited kingdom, the kingdom that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He's offering that to the Jewish people. In fact, we jump ahead to Matthew chapter 10, um, you know, some three, four, five chapters after the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew 5, but we jump ahead to Matthew uh, 10, and Jesus is still instructing his Gentile or his his uh, disciples to avoid the Gentiles and to avoid the Samaritans and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 10, 5 through 7 says, These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's nearby. That means that uh, he was offering... Uh, the legitimate kingdom that had been prophesied about in the Old Testament. So it's very helpful to understand who the audience is. This is an audience who hypothetically, had they received Jesus's message and received his person as their king, this would have been the exact audience who would have walked into the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, obviously we know Uh, from the scriptures, that they would not just walk in because they were Jewish, uh, that they would only enter the kingdom of God, as Jesus told Nicodemus, if they were born again, if they had put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so that is very helpful to understand as we try to determine the interpretation. Now, one of the, uh, another kind of subtle reasons why there's so much debate, if you will, and differences of opinion on the Sermon on the Mount is because although the Sermon on the Mount has a distinctly Jewish audience, what we do find in the sermon is there are certain righteous principles 
uh, what we'd say transdispensational principles. In other words, they're true in every age and uh, every dispensation in human history, um, and even some principles that can be applied to the church age. And so this is where a lot of the confusion comes in, because what exactly do we apply to the church age? But again, very important to understand the interpretation first before we start trying to make application. Now, again, when we talk about this kingdom that Jesus is offering, it is going to be the most unique kingdom that ever existed in terms of structure and values. In fact, by the time Jesus's listeners heard the Beatitudes, what we know as the Beatitudes there in the first, uh, basically 11 to 12 verses, um, they should have been able to recognize that the kingdom Jesus was talking about was the one spoken of in the Old Testament. And so very important uh, to understand as we work through this Sermon on the Mount that the Beatitudes would have really given them uh, an insight into which kingdom that Jesus was speaking about. And as we jump down into chapter 5, one of the key verses in the Sermon on the Mount is found in chapter 5, verse 20. Uh, And this verse is really key to the interpretation of, of this entire message. And it reads this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And, um, you know, this would have been a shock, as I mentioned before, the the multitudes here hearing that their righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Uh, it would have blown them away. Uh, it would have just really shocked them because in their mind, the Pharisees were the most righteous people in in the Jewish nation. And so to exceed that righteousness would have seemed uh, very, very impossible. And yet the scriptures are very clear that in order for someone to gain entrance into the kingdom, in order for someone to uh, be given eternal life, they have to have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. Now, the good news is that the gospel provides that righteousness. That's what what Romans 3.21 and 22 talk about, this, this righteousness apart from the law that, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, where God credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ to anyone who simply believes in him, that he died for their sins and rose again. And so as we as we leave verse 20 going forward, we see this section where Jesus will completely explain not only the letter of the law, which is what the Pharisees were interested uh, in terms of their righteous standing, but Jesus will also explain the proper internal mas- uh, internal motivation underlying the law. And so he's going to give a complete and full understanding of God's righteous standard. This is something that the Pharisees did not do, could not do, because their righteous standard was based simply on external righteousness. In fact, they they cared very little about internal righteousness. They cared mostly about what was seen. And so what Jesus is going to do in this next section is he's going to contrast six rabbinical interpretations uh, of the Torah with God's interpretation of the Torah. And so the Pharisees we, we see in the other Jewish religious leaders of the day had actually lowered the standard of the law by simply emphasizing external compliance. And so then Jesus goes to work. And in verse 21 through 26, as we looked at in the last session uh, section, he um he he looked at the first interpretation that was falsely done by the scribes and Pharisees, and that was on the command to murder. And Jesus basically gives the instruction that hating 
is also a violation of that sixth commandment. Something that goes on in your heart and in your mind uh, would would cause somebody to be just as guilty of physically murdering somebody in God's estimation. Again, we're looking at God's standard of righteousness, not the Pharisaic interpretation. We jump down to verses 27 through 30, and the second interpretation that Jesus challenged was the interpretation on the commandment not to commit adultery. And Jesus goes on to say that from God's standard of righteousness, lustful thoughts are equal to committing the act of adultery. Then in verse 31 through 32, Jesus challenges a third interpretation, and that is regarding the commandment of divorce. And uh, what Jesus was dealing with in this day was uh, the misunderstanding amongst the rabbis of any cause divorce. And what Jesus was saying is that their interpretation, uh, again, would be that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. But we learn here that in God's eyes, uh, divorce is the moral equivalent of adultery. And so, again, Jesus is going under the surface here for God's righteous standard. And he's showing how the Pharisaic level of righteousness is not enough to get into the kingdom, that they would need a higher level of righteousness, a righteousness that takes into account not only external compliance, but also internal compliance. Now, why would Jesus raise this standard? Well, I think that most honest people would recognize, boy, I don't measure up. If that's the standard, I'm in big trouble. I might've been able to keep the external measurements of that standard, but boy, if God is going to go to the internal, if God is going to look and judge the secrets and the the secret thoughts and intents of my heart, I'm in big trouble. You know, I think this is exactly what Jesus was doing so that people would recognize their need for a savior. In fact, we learn in Galatians later that the that the law is simply a tutor to bring people to Jesus Christ, recognizing that they can't keep the law or obtain a standard of righteousness through law keeping, because God is not just interested in external compliance, but also internal compliance. And so that fourth interpretation that Jesus uh, challenges is in the area of oaths. And we find that in verses 33 through 37 of Matthew 5. And let me go ahead and read that. Jesus says again, you have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that no oaths are trivial. But in Jesus's day, the religious leaders often took the letter of the law seriously in that they would not swear by the Lord's name unless they intended to keep their oath. However, what what is ironic is history tells us is that they developed an entire scheme of communication of oaths where they would swear by some things when they wanted to deceive someone, and then they would swear by other things when they intended to fulfill their oath in integrity. In fact, they had developed this elaborate stratification of oaths. They had taught that swearing by God's name was binding, but swearing by heaven and earth was not binding. Swearing toward Jerusalem was binding, but swearing by Jerusalem was not binding. In fact, 
in in many cases, they even tried to deceive others by appealing to various authorities in their oaths. And so you see, Jesus is saying, you know, you know, basically, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to swear by an oath to really mean something or to really not mean something. In other words, the 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 heart behind this uh, injunction. Uh, is is transdispensational. God desires truthfulness and integrity at all times. Not just truthfulness when you really, really mean it, but if you don't really, really mean it, you can lie. God desires integrity and truthfulness at all times. And this is exactly, again, just another contrast of the righteous standard the Pharisees had just externally where they felt like they could deceive with oaths versus what God's standard is. And again, it's a transdispensational principle. You can find that God is still interested in honest uh, communication with integrity, even in Ephesians 4.25 and James 5.12. Now, the fifth interpretation that Jesus challenges is found in verses 38 through 42. It reads this, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, Take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And so this is a teaching on retaliation or revenge. This teaching would have been easy to misconstrue because in the Mosaic law, it allowed for limited retaliation. In fact, it was limited to equal compensation. In other words, it allowed for justice on a corporate basis. And what we mean by that is the civil government had the right to govern society. But what it did not allow for and what it had um, degenerated into was in the area of excessive personal vengeance and ongoing personal generational vendettas. And so the main difference in the rabbinical interpretation was the lack of recognition of the distinction between personal retaliation and corporate or civic retaliation or justice. Um, and then clearly this is a transdispensational principle as well. We find in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 20, which basically says, allow God to take vengeance for you and allow uh, the authority that he sets up, Romans 13, to take care of civil issues. Do not uh, engage in retaliation, personal vendettas of revenge against other people. And this was going on in Jesus's day. And again, he contrasts their faulty interpretation of righteousness by getting to the heart of the issue. 